Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. I'm grateful to be here with you all again. I love Hume Lake. I love being here, partnering with local churches in this ministry that God has used so faithfully through the years. What a joy to be here. I'll be teaching in the Hume Teaching Series all week, and what we're going to be talking about is how we grow. How do we grow? There's always been a tension, if you read the New Testament, the tension's right there between realizing who we are in Christ as a completed work by faith in Christ, but then the need to do what the Bible says is working out our faith with fear and trembling. And there's a tension there. There are are letters written to churches that seem to be resting in the finished work of Christ in some sort of distorted way to the point where they didn't think that you needed to actually work out your faith. And they needed to know that faith without works is dead. Other churches were so emphasizing what we do that they weren't resting sufficiently in the finished work of Christ. And so, for instance, Paul needs to write to the Galatians, what has bewitched you? Do you think you can add any works to faith? And so this tension between the finished work of Jesus with nothing left for us to add to it, but then the very important need for us to continue on in growth and discipleship is what we'll be talking about. I think biblically there are nine fundamental ways we grow. Uh, David Mathis has a great title of a book, Habits of Grace, and that's really the title of what I'll be talking about this week, the nine ways we avail ourselves to God's means of grace. What are those things? What do they mean for us? How do we practically do those so that we get further rooted in the true gospel? That's what we'll be doing starting tonight. Well, this morning, though, I want to talk about fatherhood. Here's what I'd love to do. Would you just yell out, so we can all hear you, words that come to mind when you hear the word father? Protector. Protector. Provider. Shepherd. What was this one? Love. Yes, love. What else? Fun. No, that's a good one. Fun. Tuition payer. Yes. (laughs) Was that a father or a child who said that? Was that appreciation or bemoaning? Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. That's great. What else? Teacher. Teacher. Other, other words? Leader. Role model. Yes. Other words? Strength. What's this? What was it back? I'm sorry. Joyful, oh, how good to say your father's joyful. Is your father with you? Yes, oh, and you're a joyful man, apparently. That's beautiful. Oh, you can take that to the bank, right? That's beautiful. Joyful, good. Aren't these great words? Wow, such good words. Now, if we were going to get personal and... Not just talk maybe about the ideal of a father or how great if those words really describe what you experience in your father. But if we were to get personal and and super honest, we'd probably have some folks yelling out absent or emotionally unavailable or deceased or abusive even. 
And so we've got to wrestle in life with things that God has created, that he came up with and created to point beyond those things to him and appreciate when we see what God intends in those realities like fatherhood as protector, provider, leader, fun, joyful, tuition payer, right? When we, when we see these things that epitomize what we think of as a father, we need to love it and rejoice in it and learn of who God is more. But it's very important that we don't take bad, distorted versions that sin has twisted and project that on God. That's true of everything he's made that is in this distorted world that still is giving glory to him and imaging him, but at the same time, at times, in balance, is a pretty distorted picture of who he is. So understanding any attribute of God, most especially attributes like fatherhood, it's so important to appreciate when the earthly examples are pressing home what God intends for those examples to be, to point us to God. But when that's not happening, that we don't project that on God wrongly. You know, it's interesting. When, when we want people to understand ideas, we'll often look for illustrations. We'll have an idea... And we'll think, oh, well, how can I illustrate this? But it's never that way for God. God's not some preacher looking for illustrations. God is the one who makes creation. He makes the illustrations with in intention, with purpose. So it's not like... Uh, God wants us to understand what it means to be strong and a provider and a leader and a protector. And then says, hmm... Could I use to show that oh, fatherhood? That'd be a great thing to use. It's never that way for God. With God, He creates everything with intentional, divine purpose to point us away from that thing to the imaging of, imaging of Him that takes place in that thing. Now, as you think about fatherhood as something God creates to show us who He is, there are a couple things I want us to think about. One is the importance of male and female. You know, sometimes we don't realize how devastating the implications are of messing up sexuality and issues of male and female. You know, when you blur or obliterate distinctions between men and women, you don't just lose the general category of men and women, you lose the categories more specific of husband and wife or mother and father. Because... If you don't have men and women, you don't have mothers and fathers. You don't have husbands and wives. You don't have brothers and sisters. And we live in an age where gender is not just devalued, but actually people hate it. People hate the idea that it's disdainfully called gender binary, right? How dare you? But do you realize what we lose? If we lose men and women, male and female, we don't just lose men and women, we lose motherhood and fatherhood and, and sisterhood and brotherhood. And now you need these generic terms like spouse, which can refer to both, but is that all we've got is just general terms now, or sibling, or parent. Those are fine terms, but it's just not quite the same as the specific terms now, is it? So we've got to value male and female to understand men and women. Now, to be sure, mothers 
can and are often wonderfully, sadly sometimes, as single moms, are amazing providers, protectors, leaders. And, and so we don't want to overdo the distinctions, but we want to maintain the distinctions. I just love that when I threw that word out, distinctive fatherly attributes came out. Again, that apply to mothers and fathers. But we realize in, in a greater degree and with a relational dynamic, there are certain attributes that epitomize fatherhood. As a matter of fact, God, in a, in a few places, refers to himself in a motherly way. He says, he says, you know, as a mother, he says, even if a nursing mother leaves her baby, I'll never leave you. Jesus himself says to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you as a hen gathers his chicks. So there, there's motherly imagery for God as well. But overwhelmingly, the emphasis is on the fatherhood of God. And we'll see clearly why that's the case. Would you open your Bibles to Genesis, I, I'm sorry, uh, Galatians chapter 4, please. Galatians chapter 4 describes the relationship we have now with God. Listen to what it says in Galatians 4, beginning at verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father! So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What an amazing passage. So, so we're sons. Now, now some translations uh, want to make sure women know they're included in this, which they are. And they will, they will translate this, this word that is specifically the word sons. But it includes women in the, in the church too. So translators will, will say sons and daughters. I appreciate the desire for women to not feel excluded, but I, I want us to realize the importance of the translation here that is the, the, the most technically accurate translation of the word here, and it's sons. Now, the point here is not to exclude women. The point here is to help us understand that in Jesus, we have sonship in the Son. We're co-heirs with the Son. We're beloved in the Son. And so we are sons in the Son. Do you know what a woman in the first century would have said if, if Paul had said, in Christ, you're sons and daughters? You know what she would have said? Oh. I thought everything was going to change in Jesus, but I guess not. I still get the daughter's inheritance. I still don't rate with the son, especially the firstborn son. But when it says, in Christ, you're all sons. All of us 
are, are sons in the son. We have the inheritance of the son. We have sonship in the son. See, it's important not to get so concerned that I get included in the language that I end up missing a theological point. It's like when I talk to men and they say, you know, I just, I don't know what to do with that bride imagery. What am I supposed to do with that bride imagery? I, the bride, how am I supposed to enter into that emotionally? And I usually will say this, you need to get over yourself. <laughs> Can you understand a beautiful metaphor to get to a profound theological truth and just enter into it instead of these weird particularities that keep you from doing that? Enter into this amazing image that's communicating a profound theological truth. And so we need to enter into this and see that in Christ we are sons. We were formerly enslaved, it goes on to say but we're not anymore. We now, because we have sonship in the Son, we now have the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So the Spirit mediates the presence of the risen Christ. That's why Jesus says, I'll never leave you or forsake you when he leaves because he knows the Spirit's coming to mediate his presence and he will be there in a way that Jesus even says is advantageous to him being here in the incarnate state he was in for 33 years. It's better to have his presence mediated through the Spirit and that's what we have. And the Spirit indwelling is the seal of our redemption and enables us to cry as Jesus himself cried, this tender phrase, Abba, Father, this Aramaic term that, that's not even just a general father term, it's tender. It's what a little kid would yell when daddy comes home and he runs out and says, Daddy. Yeah, that, it's this beautiful image. That's what we get to say. And there are exclamation points probably in your English translation there for a reason. There's a sense of not just tender intimacy, but utter desperate need. We need him, and he's there for us, fully and completely. We're no longer slaves, but we're sons. And if that's the case, we're heirs. One more passage I want to look at. Go to Romans 8, please. Listen to Romans 8, verse 12, starting in verse 12. Let, let this just wash over you. Listen to these words. Romans 8, 12. So then, brothers, we're debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, see how similar to Galatians 4, are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. There it is again. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if the children, if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, clearly, on this Father's Day, there is a message here for fathers. 
or fathers-to-be, or spiritual fathers, which all Christian men are called to be, I think, among the people of God. Paul called Timothy his son in the faith. The apostle John called the church to which he wrote, he, he said, I have no greater joy than that my children are walking with the Lord. That's not his children in his home. That's that church. And so, so we're all called to be this. So, so here's a message for fathers. It's only going to be about 30, 40 seconds, and then I'll get back to where I was. But here's the message for fathers on Father's Day. Your job is to give a, a little reflection on a daily basis that adds up to a significant reflection of who your children's heavenly father is. God is caring for your children through you. You're a conduit of his fatherly care. You're expendable, though, which is good news because you're going to die someday. So until that happens, help your kids know who God the Father is and all his wonderful fatherly care. But never see yourself as the ultimate father that they most need. So, we need a father, don't we? We need a father who will never die. We need a father who will always be there. We need a father who isn't frail and battling his own sin all the time anyway. And that's our heavenly father. Oh, the, 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 the fatherhood of God is a precious title, attribute, image of God, this beautiful idea that God is the father we all need. There's no memory for my childhood of my father's fatherly care for me that stands out more than one night when I was 13. I was 13 and my brother was 15 and my mother was sound asleep and neither of us Look, when a preacher gives an example of something he did, it is never necessarily an example you should follow, okay? Can we just get that on the table? Some things are descriptive, not proscriptive from the life of a preacher, okay? So I was, if you're a young person here, this is a terrible example, okay? Do not follow this. I'm, I'm trying to get to my dad, okay? So... I'm 13, my brother's 15, neither of us have driver's licenses, but we decide to take my mother's car uh, at midnight, she's asleep, and go for a joyride. It's, it's about 10 below zero in Connecticut. It had, it had rained for days, and then it, it was freezing rain, and we were pretty sure that the big parking lot at our high school football stadium had frozen over, as it will sometimes do. It didn't drain very well, and it would freeze over with about almost three feet of water that would turn into an incredible ice pond. And so we drove over to Nolan Field, which is what I'm talking about, in this giant parking lot at midnight, and we had the time of our lives taking turns. <laughs> we used to watch Starsky and Hutch. Anybody know that show? But it, we felt like... We, we were having the time of our lives just doing donuts in this parking lot and just doing everything we would ever want to do with an automobile, except maybe jump the Grand Canyon or something. But we were having a blast. And I don't know, I don't know why. It was really cold. The back wheels of the car broke through the ice and just got buried. And we're stuck right in the middle of this giant parking lot at 1 a.m., 
And so the younger brother gets out, and, and I'm trying to push this car out, and my brother's coming, harder, come on, and he's stepping on it. I'm getting sprayed with ice and, and water, and I'm soaking wet, and I'm freezing, and he's just yelling at me like big brothers do, you know, and he's getting mad, and I said, well, you know what, you'll give me a turn at the wheel instead of, and we were, it was just a disaster, and it just kept getting more and more buried, and then the front wheels went in, and that thing was going to be stuck for days, and we're thinking, we're in big, big trouble. I hope the police don't see us because we'll have to say my mother drove here and then left us here or something because, because we don't have our driver's licenses. What are we going to do? And I thought, you know, my parents were divorced at this time. My dad lived about 45 minutes away. My dad's one of those guys. He worked construction. He ran a commercial diving company. My dad's one of those guys who can fix anything, make anything, solve, solve any kind of problem like this. So we said, we got to call dad. So we ran down the road, we found a payphone, and we called dad on this payphone, and he said, I'll be right there. I don't know how fast he drove, but he, I told you he lived 40 minutes away. He was there in 20 minutes in his big old Suburban. And he pulled up, and he smartly didn't drive into the parking lot. He parked outside the parking lot, and he walked over to us, and he put blankets around. And he said, go get in the car. I got the heat cranking. And there's a thermos of hot chocolate in there for you. And we sat drinking hot chocolate with blankets around us, sitting in my dad's Suburban. And he pulls his winch off the front of the Suburban, way out in the parking lot, hooks it up to my mother's car, and pulls the car out to safety. And got us home dry and warm with bellies full of hot chocolate and my mother never finding out. <laughs> Which was the most important thing. Now, let's not talk, let's not talk about the ethics of all that. and Let's just, just appreciate the imagery, okay? That, I will never forget that, that image of my dad pulling in and showing up. Do you know... You know what some people think the Christian faith or religion is? It's saying, I really messed up. Dad's going to kill me. You know what the Christian faith is? I really messed up. I got to call dad. And it doesn't mean you don't have a healthy respect for him. Even what the Bible calls a healthy fear of dad. It used to mean something when a mom would say, wait till your father gets old. Uh, Mom, could we talk about this? You know, it, it, it used to mean something. Again, it doesn't mean moms aren't disciplinarians, but there should be something about dad coming home. But, but this fatherly image, that's what we have in God. We just don't need principles, do we? We don't just need ideas or doctrines. We need a heavenly father who's there for us, who loves us, who cares for us. And that's what we have. We have this Abba Father who's our Father. And listen, he's our Father by creation. He made us. Listen to Isaiah 64a. Oh, Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. He made us. We're his offspring. 
There is a fatherhood that creation has in God, and there's a daily providential care in this creational fatherhood that's just beautiful. The air we breathe, the sunlight, the, the breeze, the, the everything. God sends his reign on the just and the unjust alike. He loves us by creation. He loves us by care. But you know what else he does? He loves us by faith. We trust him. Here's what I want you to know. If you've never trusted Jesus, if you sit here this morning and you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus' finished work, you don't have God caring for you in relationship with you the way someone who has trusted Jesus does. I don't want you to leave here buying into the lie of what's Christian liberalism, FOGBOM. Have you ever heard that acronym? The fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man. Where we use this creation idea and say, well, God's the father of us all. And there's truth to that. And we say, oh, therefore, we're all brothers. And, and, and there's some truth to that with God as creator. But what you need to realize is sin has wrecked it all. Sin's destroyed it all. Russell Moore in his book Adopted for Life in the introduction says, when Adam and Eve rebelled against their creator, the entire universe became an orphanage. And we all gave away, we forfeited in our sinful rebellion, our father-child relationship with God. It was destroyed because we rebelled against our father. And that relationship was broken. But we can get it back because he's so gracious. Because he so loves in his creation, cares so much that he moves toward his fallen humanity and offers a way of having that relationship reestablished. Yes, through forgiveness, and yes, yes, through righteousness, and yes, ultimately through adoption. Here's what J.I. Packer says in his book, Knowing God. It is a great thing to be forgiven by God, and an even greater thing still to be declared righteous by him, and an even greater thing yet still to be adopted by him into his family. We have relationship with God now by faith in the Son that nothing can compare with. It's not even the state Adam and Eve had before they fell. It's infinitely better. By faith, we are now in union with the Son. See, God looks at his Son like at his baptism, and the Father says of his Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And at the transfiguration, the Father looks at his Son, and he says, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And what you need to know is that love that the Father has for the Son, Jesus, by faith and union with him, he has that same love for you if you've trusted Jesus and you're his child which means he can't love you more than he does, which means he's fond of you, which means he doesn't just tolerate you in some sort of cold, committed, covenant love. No, he loves you as a father loves his son and as the father loves his son, Jesus. Do you know God as father is only said 15 times in the Old Testament? Only 15. But when we get the redeeming work of God kicked into high gear in the New Testament, Jesus alone uses God as Father 165 times. Just Paul's writings uses God as Father 40 times. When redemption kicks into high gear, we get God as Father established in a way, in a vividness we hadn't seen before. And now we are able to say, Abba, Father, because we are able to say it in the Son. And by faith, 
We have sonship. That's why John has known this for decades when he writes how great the love the Father has lavished on us. God's not cheap. He's not a cheap father. You know how dads are concerned about the bills, understandably, sometimes, and kids can think their fathers are cheap? Yes, it's so funny. I always ask people, um, I always ask people, so when you left the lights on in your house, what did your father say? And it's funny because it's regional. It's regional. Whatever the electric company was in the region you grew up, that's what it is. My dad was, what are we, Con Edison? What do I look like, Con Edison? No, Dad, not at all. My brother Jeff lived in Fairfield County in Connecticut, different electric company, and we'd say, what are we, Helco? Which is the the electric company there. So dads can seem like they're always concerned about about the, the budget. Understandably, young people appreciate that, but God's not cheap. He's not a miser. That was actually the first lie we were ever told about God. Do you realize that? That he's a cheap father that he's a skimpy father, that he wants to keep everything to himself. Remember what Satan said to Adam and Eve? So you can't eat of the trees in the garden, huh? Well, actually, we can eat all of them, except for one, Eve says. That, I knew it. He's holding out on you. He's cheap. You better fend for yourself. You better meet your own needs. He's not trustworthy. Whatever it is about his character that you're trusting, you better not. And so God, as our Father, is a, he's lavished on us. That's what John says, how great the love the Father has lavished on us. And then he says that we should be called children of God. And then he says, and that's what we are. He's an old man and he can't get over the fact that we're children of God, that he has sonship in the Son. It's a glorious truth that we need to learn to appreciate. No more orphan status, no more insecurity, no more loneliness, no more fear, no more despair. The light has come and God loves you and he knows you and he has the hairs of your head numbered. And if you don't know God as your father because you've never trusted Jesus, please trust him this morning in saving faith and find adoption as well as forgiveness and righteousness. And then we can walk with him in newness of life and freedom and security. You know, there are other fathers you could look to. The Bible talks about other options besides your heavenly father. You could look to your father, Adam. In other words, your natural state, right? The Bible couldn't be more clear that Adam, if if you're just a human and not a redeemed, blood-bought by Jesus, new creature in Christ, who has found the new Adam and life in him, if you're just depending on your natural state in the the first Adam, the Bible says the only thing that awaits you is death. You'll die in your sins if you don't find life in the new Adam. You could find a father in Satan. I know that seems extreme maybe to you, but that's what actually Jesus says to religious people. He says, you don't have God as your heavenly father. You know who you have as your father? He says, Satan, because you're believing lies. And he's the father of lies. He says, your father's the devil. What a stunning thing to say. You might want to choose Father Abraham. In other words, what the Bible would say is religion. So you're not satisfied with your natural state, but you want to say, well, then I'll go the religious route. And that's what the religious people would say to Jesus when he called them out and said, you're not part of the kingdom. They'd say, do you know who our father is? Do you know our religious pedigree? 
Do you know my great-grandfather owned a cabin at Hume Lake? (laughs) And I give quite generously to Hume Lake. And I know many Bible verses. And I've given donations to my church. And I'm quite respected in the religious community. And Jesus says, you know, you're not showing up in the kingdom guest list. Because they just had Abraham as their father. They didn't have their heavenly father through the son. They actually were rejecting the son. You know, I think religiosity and moral superiority is more dangerous than than just licentious sinfulness. It's more deceptive. You're more likely to think you're doing really well. You may want to rely on your earthly father. Maybe you had a great father. And, And that's a blessing, and you should thank God for that great father, and thank your great father for that if he's still around. But like I said in the beginning, Every earthly father is just a means of fatherly care through your heavenly father. He's the one you need, not your earthly father. We're all frail. We all fail. Ask my kids how many times I've had to repent to them of my sin. And when I grieve over ways I've sinned against my kids, I I say, thank God I'm not the ultimate father that they ultimately need because I'm a frail and sinful man. Remember we were reading the Cain and Abel story in a children's Bible one time, and the first question you're supposed to ask the kid is, do you think your parents are sinful too? You should have seen the reaction of my children. Yes! You would have, yes, what a stupid question. I'm like, what? You don't want to think about it for five seconds as a possibility maybe? And I thought, no, no, they know their Bibles, and they know their father. And they've heard their father repent many times. So don't depend on any of those fathers. Depend on the father who mediates his fatherly care for you through his son Jesus. That son Jesus who shows us beautiful fatherly care. You know, it's father, son, and Holy Spirit. But do you know, the Bible even says in Isaiah chapter 9 that the Messiah Jesus brings the fatherly care to the point where we call the Messiah like Handel taught us to sing everlasting father, prince of peace, right? The Messiah, that's the son. But he brings fatherly care where we call the Messiah the everlasting father. And then Jesus shows us this beautiful fatherly care over and over again. You remember the woman who'd been hemorrhaging for 12 years and desperate, marginalized, kicked out of society, physical problems, spent all her resources trying to solve this problem, and she doesn't care. She makes her way through the crowd, and she grabs the hem of his garment, and she's healed. Remember what Jesus says to her? The first word is, daughter. Daughter. He brings fatherly healing care to this woman. Remember Jairus, this rich and influential guy, his daughter's dying, and he stops to take care of that woman. But he finally gets to Jairus' house, and it's too late. She's died. And Jesus goes over. And you remember what he says to her, his first words? Talathakomi. Little girl. Arise. You you could paraphrase that. Honey, time to get up. She was dead, and the king of kings comes as a father, and he says, sweetie, it's time to get up. 
And she does. And then as a father would, he even cares that she gets some food. Oh, it's just beautiful. That's the kind of care God as your father has for you. Do you have him as your father? And if you do have him as your father, lean into that. Don't try to go it alone, fend for yourself, make a way on your own. No, realize how needy you are and how much you need a heavenly father. And, and that little one, yes, easily applies to a little girl or a woman in desperate states. But Jason King, would you stand up? Look at Jason King. Yeah. Just so they could all see it. Just... Thanks, brother. Jay, you could sit down. But I want you to know that relatively speaking, the difference between that little girl and Jason King, relative between us and God, God calls Jason King tenderly his, his son, his, his, his little boy. <laughs> See, we can think we get physically big or socially big or financially big or religiously big, and we don't need God anymore. And sometimes the bigger you get in the world standards, the more you desperately you need him because you're tempted to think that what the world provides is going to be enough for you. We all desperately need God as our Heavenly Father, don't we? You know, um, my daughter, Caroline, uh, We'd, we adopted Caroline when she was eight, and, and she was just this tiny little thing, really tiny, and she still kind of is. She hasn't broken triple digits in her weight number yet, and she probably never will. And, and, and the first day I met Caroline, even though she didn't speak English, I started calling her my little one. And to this day, she's 22 and a grown, godly, mature, amazing woman. And she still is and always will be my little one. And I want you to know how deeply God feels that way toward you. I remember one time Caroline went on a trip with us and I got up early, like four in the morning to go go down to the lobby, and she was in, in the bed, family's over here, but the blanket had fallen off her bed, and she was curled up in a ball. You know how you can be aware of being cold subconsciously even when you're asleep, and, and she had curled up in a ball, and she looked so tiny in this bed. I think she was only nine, and she was curled up in this little ball in this bed trying to conserve her body heat because her blanket had fallen all the way on the floor. And I quietly went over. I didn't want to wake her up. And I picked the blanket up. And I put it on her. And I carefully tucked her in. And then I laid my hands on her shoulder. And I prayed for her. And as I was praying for her, I felt all this fatherly compassion for her. And then I thought, you know, as much as I love this little one, it's just a little glimmer of the way God loves her and the way he loves me and all his children, all of us. So often, like Caroline in that bed, she wasn't even aware that, that she was cold consciously, but she was cold. She had needs she wasn't even aware of. And God's such an all-good, all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful father. He knows your needs when you're clueless about them. And he's at the ready to care for you even when, according to his sovereignty, your life has difficulty and suffering. 
in this world we're promised will have trouble. But take heart, Jesus says. Your Father has overcome the world. Trust him. Lean into his fatherly care because he is the Father who will never disappoint, never fail, never sin, never hurt you. He'll always be there for you. And he'll never die. He's the everlasting Father. Help us, Lord, to lean into your fatherly care for us. Thank you for this Father's Day, one of the few Hallmark holidays that's worth celebrating, in my opinion. But, but so good and so right to acknowledge fathers because we know you created fathers and fatherhood to point us to you as our great heavenly Father. Lord, thank you that you care for us as a father cares for his children. Thank you that in the Son, you love us as much as you love Jesus. Consider us as righteous as he is, which is the righteousness of God. And Lord, you've invited us into table fellowship that's existed for all of eternity among Father, Son, and Spirit. And now we, partakers of the divine nature nature and co-heirs with Christ, are invited into that table fellowship. And that's awesome. And that's for eternity. And that's your doing. And so we glorify you and express our gratitude to you on this Father's Day that you've given us not just, uh, for a lot of us, great earthly fathers and fathers in the church to care for us, but you've given us yourself, the Father we all desperately and wonderfully completely have through Christ by faith. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.